Thank you for tuning into the future of health on Dash Radio during this coronavirus pandemic. We're lucky to have many experts around our COVID-19 topic and many guest hosts. Remember to visit coronavirus.providence.org for more information. Hello, and welcome to our broadcast. I'm Dr. Fran Broyles, Medical Director of Diabetes, Endocrinology, and Nutrition for Swedish, as well as the Clinical Lead on the Healthy Weight Initiative for Providence. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. If you have any questions regarding medical conditions or treatment plans, please consult your physician. Participating in this event does not create a physician-patient relationship. Now let's get started. Joining me today during this live event um, is Rick Reese, Director of Behavior Program Development at HMR Weight Management Services, one of Providence family of brands. So Rick, I'm excited to have you today. To get us started, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at HMR. Thank you, Fran. Excited to be here and talking to you. Um, I wear a few hats at HMR. I support the ongoing development of the program to meet our program's needs, our, our patients' needs, and we, well, the fundamentals of the program don't really change, but we have added treatment options and we're always looking for ways to simplify how we help people to be more compliant with healthy lifestyle behaviors. I also do a lot of training with staff in our program and with other healthcare professionals, Fran. And um, I've always, for I've been with HMR for over 30 years, I've always continued to do direct patient care. In fact, I finished a, a weight loss group by way of Zoom just an hour ago. <laughs> So Excellent. And um, and so, Rick, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, why it has been so challenging uh, for many people to really um, manage their weight um, and how people are doing these days. Yeah, that is the question, isn't it? Um, I think you know, a few years ago, a New York Times magazine cover said it all for an the headline was, do you have to be superhuman to lose weight? That was literally graced the cover. Um, clearly, it's, it's been a steady increase in the prevalence of overweight and obesity in America today. I remember back in the late 80s when I first got into this field, having a conversation with a colleague. At the time, the, the statistics for people who are medically overweight were around 39%, 40%. And we actually had a conversation about, gee, do you think it would ever get to 50%? Because it had been rising pretty steadily. Right. Um, but then we saw in the 90s, it passed 50% of Americans medically overweight. In the 2000s, we passed 60% of Americans overweight. And then in the 2010s, we passed 70%. And today, the latest uh, data from the CDC, 73.6% of Americans now are overweight or obese by medical standards. So clearly, I know you see that in your practice. It's very concerning. Uh, I will say, Fran, though, we talked about this in an earlier conversation. What's additionally concerning are some of the trends that we're seeing with COVID. Um, the data is coming in and, and none of it is positive. Physical activity trends are clearly down. Um, convenience and comfort food intake is up. I think you could I'm, I'm guilty in that area. As we all are. Absolutely. Um, what was interesting, home baking is up. Flour and sugar sales have skyrocketed. Um, and it was, it's so funny, Fran, just serendipitously, just yesterday in my email box, I got findings from the home baking report. I, I'm sure you already read this. I'm sure you subscribed. To this. 
So this this said it all. The trend of home baking, which soared in popularity during the pandemic, is still going strong with sustained elevated sales expected through 2025. So some of these trends that we're seeing, they, they have a lasting effect. It's been a huge, huge setback. It's been a, it's been a huge challenge. And I, and I have to say, I was reading the New York Times driving into um, work today, and mm -hmm. the comment was that the average weight gain during COVID has been two pounds a month. Um, which is 24 pounds in, in the last 12 months. And it's been incredibly challenging. I mean, I don't think that I've spoken to a single patient um, since COVID lockdown who hasn't really, really been struggling. Yeah. Um, you know, the stress is not helpful being in lockdown, trying to Zoom your kids and work from home at the same time. And then I think just the virtue of sitting um, you know, I know you had talked to me about the fact that there was some new data saying that, you know, we are sitting an hour more, a day. Right. Um, sitting has always been called sort of the new smoking. But when you're sitting, you know, all day long looking at a camera on Zoom, um, it is really hard to then get up and, and try to be motivated to go out and exercise. Yeah, that's probably been my personal, my my biggest surprise about my own health habits, Fran. Um, I am sitting more. I'm working at home right now. I'm working from home now. And it is amazing how few breaks I take from this chair that I'm in right now. I, I took for granted all the times you'd get up to go to a meeting when, you know, I, when I was um, in the office uh, with my colleagues, moving um, in all of that, I have to make up for all of that movement. that's not happening now. Um, and I have to say it's, I, I wish I could give myself a, a, an A plus. But I, I know, I know. I think, um, you know, I've, I've always tried to, to touch my patients about just increasing their incidental activity during the day. Yes, and by one of those mechanisms is to drink a lot of water. And every time you get up to use the bathroom, you have to move for five minutes. And I don't care what you do. You can do jumpy jacks in the bathroom. You can climb your stairs at home. But it is really hard that, you know, you're in these meetings. You can't leave the meetings or leave the room. Um, so it, it is. It's, and I think Zoom has been strangely exhausting. Um, and I think going back, Rick, to talk about this issue of the escalating um, prevalence of overweight and obesity, I think that the other thing, of course, that that goes hand in hand with that is the you know dramatic increase in prevalence in the um, diseases and health issues that are that accompany weight. Sure. And so you know these are things like prediabetes, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, lung disease. So there is a linear relationship really between as your weight goes up, um, those disease states going up as well. I think the positive message though, is that as weight goes down, yes. those things get dramatically better. And certainly in the world of prediabetes, um, as well as diabetes, we know that you can reverse um, those trends and normalize glucose levels by really making changes in your diet and activity. So I think, yeah. you know, we have to realize that we can, you know, have an impact. Yeah. I have to say, you mentioned health at so, so many of the disease states, chronic conditions and whatnot. One of the things I'm so in touch with just because I, I work with people to lose weight, you know, every week in and out is how often it boils down to quality of life for so many people. When you ask them, you know, why do you want to lose this weight or what are you hoping to experience at a lower body weight? It's uh, amazing how often it comes back to quality of life and not just physical quality of life, emotional health as well. It's all inextricably linked. Uh, we, during COVID, we've seen anxiety levels going up in society. That's been documented and uh, it's not helping 
that, that people are not feeling good about you know their weight. Certainly that's that. Exactly. And, and I know that gets to um, some things that, that we want to talk about, like, the, you know, the why about why people want to really change their weight. And, and I had a, a patient recently who, who broke down because uh, he couldn't get on the floor to play Barbies with his oh. daughter. Oh. Um, and she said, you know, I don't want to play Barbies with you, dad. Um, and he said, why? And he said, it, she said, it's because you can't get on, you can't get down on the floor with me to play. And, you know, that truly, I think, broke his heart. So I think, you know, there are things that obviously, you know, we, we don't necessarily understand about um, the impacts of what weight does for us. And, Absolutely. you know, I guess, you know, Rick, what do you, what, what are your thoughts about what's driving this trend um, mm -hmm. of escalating body weight? Huge question. Uh, certainly, there are a lot of ideas thrown about. I, I know, you know, being in this field, you just go out to dinner with a group of friends, and it's interesting how many experts there are out there. Yeah. Um, today, you know, with the internet, there's just an avalanche of information out there. Unfortunately, a lot of it is misinformation. And there are a lot of theories, but what has clearly paralleled the weight gain of Americans through the decades, really, the last five decades, are the changes that we've seen in our environment, in our culture. I mean, that is clear, the, the increased availability of food, the calorie density of food, the portion sizes having increased, along with, as you mentioned, declines in physical activity. The thing that was interesting about that study you mentioned where we've added an hour of sitting to our times, this was six years after the previous report. This was from the nation's report card where there were editorial comments uh, six years ago, basically saying, is it possible to get any more sedentary? So I guess we sort of answered that question. Somehow we found another hour uh, to do it, probably with Netflix and Amazon Prime and whatnot. Right, exactly. I mean, I have to say I'm, I'm old enough to remember when you had to get up to change the channel on the television, um, which, by the way, you know, that was a good thing. You were actually getting up and, and moving. And, and you know, I think this um, the issue of this trends and, and why we're seeing weight go up on um, food availability, as you mentioned, calorie density also has to do with this environment mm -hmm. that we live in yeah. that is 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 really stacked against us. Um, in terms of trying to be successful. And so, you know, you're great about, you know, giving some wonderful examples of this. Um, but one of my favorites is um, the magazine cover of a woman's magazine that has an advertisement on the front about weight loss. And at the same time, a picture of a giant dessert on the front mm -hmm. and then all these recipes on the inside. So, um, you know, how, how are you successful when you're getting these mixed messages? And so I wanted you to comment on on some of the things that, that you've seen in this area. Yeah. So you want to I can I could spend the rest of our time doing a deep dive on some of the environmental issues. Should we go there? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Well, you know, one of the things I would just set it up by saying it's interesting when people when you first talk to people about losing weight and, and how to approach it, you know, often it's like, just tell me what to do. Just keep it simple. Tell me what to do. What's interesting is many people actually do know what to do. And many times I turn it around and will ask people, well, if I tell you exactly what to do, does knowing equal doing? And in the same breath, they'll say, well, no, there, there's more to it than that. So education and providing information, while that's important and it can round out a successful treatment, it's, it's not enough. But I will say, and now back to what you've just sort of pointed us to here, an important area to educate people on is how incredibly unsupportive the food environment is for weight loss. 
weight management, and health management. And when we go through some of the information you and I will talk about here with people in our program, I have to say, Fran, it almost comes across as a relief for people because people are so tough on themselves, so judgmental, and there really is a cultural bias against viewing weight management as something other than this is your personal responsibility. And sometimes people will even say, you know, what's wrong with me that I can't lose weight? Well, the environment is out of control. Not you. That's what I say to people who are sitting there saying, I want to lose 50 or 100 or 150 pounds. So when you can really embrace this idea that this is a cultural phenomenon where the environment has changed so much, measurably different each year, and it, it seems to be getting worse and continuing to get worse. It's not like there's a lot of good news on the horizon. Just as an example, <clears throat> since weight management primarily revolves around uh, calorie management, Fran, I had sent you a list at one point of the top sources of calories yeah. in the American diet. Um, let me just ask you to comment on these. I'm gonna, I'll give you the, the top five, and let's just start with five. We'll do a David Letterman style for those who remember David Letterman. I don't want to date myself here. But number five is chips, chips and savory snacks. Does, does that surprise you that that's in the top five? It doesn't. And, you know, I think it, it certainly doesn't surprise me during the COVID era, COVID era because, you know, you're sitting on the couch that's watching right. the boob tube and you're eating from a giant bag that's right. of, you know, chips. And it's just this endless sort of you know, mindless grazing. Yes. So no, chips was not surprising to me. No. Um, no. I, I was a little surprised that pizza came after chips because I think because <laughs> people are ordering out all the time now, including myself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a huge issue. I thought you were referring to your own predilection for pizza. Right? <laughs> I know. That, uh, to be honest, that is why I was surprised it didn't crack the top five. <laughs> pizza came in at number six, folks, just so you know. Yeah, with the, the chips, um, it's just this is COVID has amplified it, as you say, it not only is it, um, it's convenient, it is, it's convenient and it can be even construed as comfort food. I mean, let's face it, you know, that, that's comforting to sit there. If you like chips, that, that, that's a, a wonderful moment sitting there with the bag. Uh, number four on the lift list is rice, pasta, and grain-based dishes. Um, this, there's kind of a double whammy here, which is, we'll get to this, but in our culture today, the portion sizes, they, they've never been bigger. So you, you've just eating more of the rice, pasta, grain-based dishes. But they're also often prepared with and combined with added fats. Right. Um, so, so there's your double whammy right there for number four, the, the pastas and the rices. Number three. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. So this one is, this, this one, the one that's, this is scary because it is a hidden source of calories for many people. So I'm talking about sugar-sweetened beverages. Can I, I'm sure people who are watching, Fran, have seen this demo before, but uh, in preparation for this, I just went and got a regular soda. So this is not very big, right? This is 160 calories. I was expecting it to be less than that. I'm not sure why. So just to make the point about the hidden calories here, right here, what you've got is added sugar. So I'm going to, in my cup, and here is my, uh, my sugar. I think the cup is going, uh, let me... I can't hold all three. I'm going to just put in the added sugar for, to make that soda. So here we have one teaspoon, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 
and 10. 10 teaspoons of sugar in that added sugar. So hidden calories, but also calories that matter. They are calories and excess calories is what causes weight gain. So that's just one example of many. And to think- yeah, and I would like to point out that the nutrition guidelines that came out, I wanna say it was three years ago, Rick, mm -hmm. um, said that the number of teaspoons of sugar that a female should have in one day is 10. So you just blew it on that famous drink. That's it. You can't have any more. <laughs> the number it. of teaspoons of sugar for adult men is 12. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of hidden sugars. You know, we're talking salad dressings and ketchup and, you know, pasta that, you know, sauces that you buy that are not really well labeled. And I think that's also very difficult. Absolutely. And people struggle to think that, you know, when you've struggled with your weight your whole life, how can this just boil down to little old calories? There's got to be a whole lot more going on than that. Well, the fact is no one really knows how many calories are in the things that they're eating. The portion sizes throw it all off, but also the hidden calories are just everywhere. And I, and I think it's interesting that, you know, when I've, when you and I have, have shared, you know, sort of speaker platforms before, you know, just the average amount of calories in a restaurant meal. Mm -hmm. So it's like 1,012, you know, 250 calories in yes, one meal at a restaurant, um, yeah. which is staggering. And, you know, we don't, we don't realize that. No one knows that. And you're referring to what was the biggest study done in this area. They looked at 364 different entrees from restaurants across the United States, all different eating cuisines. The average calories, average, not counting the appetizers, not counting any drinks, certainly not counting dessert or bread. The average calories, as you say, was uh, just over 1,200 calories for the entree alone. But Fran, what, what was really scary about that, and they made a big point of this in that article, was, well, that's all the eating cuisines. If you look at where most people are eating, it boils down to three. American-style restaurants, um, Italian, and Chinese restaurants. Those are the big three. Mm -hmm. The average calories in an entree from those three most populated restaurants was um, 1,495 just about 1500 calories. Again, without the appetizers, without drinks, without dessert. That is, I don't care how aware you are of calories and you may be going in saying, well, I know I'm not gonna lose weight eating out at the restaurant tonight, but does anyone really know how many calories are in so many? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think that, that that information is is so staggering. And you know, a lot of people are ordering out in COVID. And I think that has been another one of the big drivers mm -hmm. um, in terms of, and you know, I think what's also sort of a sabotaging tactic that is used in the population for us is that, you know, the bigger the portion, the more value you are getting. And so somehow there's this issue of you know, value and monetary things and that that are equated to very large portion sizes and lots of calories. Um, and that's a very interesting advertising tactic. And I think it does play a role in terms of of how people are eating and how people are choosing with reference to eating out. No question. No question. I mean, the, the idea of value, I mean, it's kind of built into us, right? I mean, there was a and, real survival and, advantage to that. And I have a question, Rick, um, about, you know, just your opinion about willpower. Mm -hmm. So we always talk about, oh, you know, if you just had enough willpower, you could manage this. And, you know, we've already talked about, you know, the environment, by the way, you guys is, is setting us up to fail big time. Yes. But, you know, really, does willpower really work? I mean, you know, this 
the science behind that, not so convincing. Yeah, that's a great question. So it, there's a paradox here because when you ask people, and I, I happen to have the, the food and health survey, a thousand people surveyed, nationally representative sample of Americans that, that they asked what are the biggest issues that prevent people from losing weight and keeping it off. The top barrier reported to losing or maintaining weight was cited as a lack of willpower. So on one hand, you people say, oh, well, it's, got a, it's a willpower. Willpower is the answer. Yet, when you ask people, how's that worked out for you lately? Right. <laughs> First to admit that, well, willpower, it's, forget it. So it, it's interesting because what is willpower? It's your ability to basically follow through on what you say you're going to do. I mean, that, that's it on the surface. But when you're thinking about food, and so let me just put up, show you, an, this is a simple Oreo here. Okay, just, this is my kryptonite, just to be <laughs> honest. Okay, this, it's tough to stop eating these for me. We all have the foods that are they're harder for us. Really what you're talking about is a struggle in your brain between those deep-seated reward centers. Eat the Oreo, eat the Oreo. Right. And you're trying to counter that with your rational prefrontal cortex. And, you know, once in a while, the willpower might, may win out, but they, more often than not, uh, the old habits, the reward center parts of your brain are going to win out. And uh, that's really what's, what's happening there. And as you alluded to, the, the re research on willpower is really interesting. It's, it's illuminating because what we're finding is that People have limited reserves of willpower. And the longer you go through the day uh, and using your willpower, the less you have left for the next time that you have to say no to the Oreo or whatever food you're trying to resist in the moment. It's no surprise the evening hours are the witching hours for most people. You know, people can make it through a day on their diets. And then when the evening comes, that's when they cave in. And now we're learning more and more about why that's the case. You essentially are dealing with a depletion of your willpower. Uh, you have very little left in the tank, and that is uh, a pretty accurate way to describe what goes on there. Which I think is, you know, sort of the interesting thing about, you know, the approach to, by the way, um, structured programs for one, HMR, meal replacements, but also just the issue of if you're going to use your willpower, use it to change your environment. So yes. don't bring those foods home with you. You know, the issue that I talk to my patients about a lot is, um, you know, if you don't bring your chocolate chip cookies home and at 10 p.m. that's your kryptonite and you want a chocolate chip cookie, yep. you're going to have to get in the car and drive to 7-Eleven to get it. That's right. That's a pretty big deterrent. Yes. So it is the issue of using your willpower to take action on changing your environment and making it easier for you to be successful. And, you know, I think this also dovetails into the issue that uh, learning how to address your weight is a skill. It's mm -hmm. a skill. It's just like riding a bike. Yes. You have to learn how to set yourself up for success and to practice the things that make you successful over and over again. And I think that's one of the things that I love about the HMR program, because that's something that it is really focused on. And I, I'd love you to make some comments on that. Yeah, absolutely. So it really extends from that first big point that we made, that the environment is what's out of control, not people who are struggling to lose weight or manage their weight in an out of control environment. It's the environment is the problem. So just extend that point. You know, any set of behaviors that's complex and difficult you need to practice it in order to get better. Well, that essentially is the model of how any skill is acquired. 
you know, if you were to try to a fun thing we do in our program, Fran, we have people write their signature with their, their normal hand. Then we ask them to write their signature with their non-dominant hand. And it feels so awkward and so strange. And then we make the point, if you did it 500 times, guess what? You'd be signing that signature just fine, but you have to practice it because it's a skill just like signing it with your other hand. So the problem is, again, there's a bias against viewing weight management as a skill. People don't recognize it as some, a complex set of behaviors that needs to be practiced in order to be learned. There is this sense of, gee, why can't that person just you know, get their act together and lose weight? Or very common, why can't I get my act together? Why can't I just pull myself up by my bootstraps and lose weight? Well, the answer is simple, because this is a skill. And it's a very, very difficult skill. And it's not like tennis. At least you go on the tennis court to practice tennis. Yeah. You're trying to learn the skills for weight loss and weight management in an environment that's not supporting it. So go on the golf course or go in the woods, Fran, and, pra and learn practice your tennis game. And that's essentially right, right. how ludicrous it is. It's a very difficult skill. So people need to give themselves a break. They need to recognize the, because the environment is out of control, Willpower is not going to be enough, but if you can approach this like a skill acquisition that needs practice and support, you're going to do much better. That's a great example. And I think that's a good segue for me to say that's why meal replacements um, as a segue into uh, weight loss and learning how to eat for the long haul have have so much amazing good um, science data behind them. And in my world, um, you know, the United Kingdom now recommends as a first line treatment for diabetes, a first line treatment, mm -hmm. um, a 12 week to six month meal replacement program. And, you know, it's interesting when I talk to patients about meal replacements, you know, there's there's a stigma about meal replacements in general. But what I try to explain to them is that if you in incorporate meal replacements into a plan for weight loss, it allows you to wipe out your old behaviors. That's right. And to learn and replace those with new ones. And um, and I think that also is the mindset, Rick, of of trying to get rid of you can't eat this, you can't eat that, you can't eat this. But if you go into a meal replacement program, and especially I think with the HMR issues with vegetables and fruits, it's this is what you are going to do. This is what you can eat. Um, these are the things that make you successful and allow you to rebuild an eating, eating program that's going to support you. It's hard to build new behaviors when you're still doing your behaviors that are that are hard and bad for you. Absolutely. I would just echo the, the science in support. Uh, just attacking on what you said last year, just in 2000, excuse me, two years ago, 2019, a uh, systematic review of the literature came out where they compared uh, meal replacement interventions with conventional, traditional pick and choose your own food diets. Uh, here's the conclusion compared to the traditional dietary approaches to weight loss, all of the meal replacement interventions resulted in superior weight loss and more significant weight change after one year. Only two studies in that, um, in that summary went out as far as four years. And again, the meal replacement interventions had people, they lost more weight up front and they were keeping off more weight over time compared to conventional dieting uh, for the simple reason of you lose a lot more weight with meal replacement interventions, meal replacement programs, and you can't keep the weight off if you don't lose it in the first place. So meal replacements, it's not even close if you're trying to lose weight, and especially if you want to lose a lot of weight, use the science to your benefit. It really is very clear that meal replacement programs work best. 
Right. And I and I, I think, you know, one of the last things because, you know, that, that I wanted you to mention a bit um, about Rick is just um, with HMR, the, the behavioral approach and also this this process of sort of volumetric eating. Yes. Um, that is a huge thing that I try to uh, comment and push forward to my patients. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, another cultural bias uh, to lose weight, you have to exercise more and and everyone says the same thing. Eat less. less. That brings along a lot of bad ideas with it. If you change the types of foods that you're eating, shifting from higher calorie foods that are most common, most popular in America to the low calorie foods that are available, fruits and vegetables, whole food group, where you can eat as many as you want and you will get filled up before the calories add up. It's also one of the reasons why the meal replacement research is so one-sided. The meal replacements can be prepared in such a way that you get a lot of food for vol- by volume, by weight, for very few calories. So one of our programs, you combine the two, HMR foods or meal replacements, prepackaged entrees, uh, shakes, uh, nutrition bars, along with the fruits and vegetables, you can eat much more food while still losing weight. And many of our program members tell us it's the biggest benefit, the biggest advantage that HMR has, this whole idea of eating more to actually lose more. When you're shifting from higher calorie foods to lower calorie foods, you actually can indulge in higher volumes and still lose a lot of weight over time. Yeah, I I would agree. I remember being in a talk that you gave where you rolled in a table with, uh, I think, a hamburger, french fries, and a a milkshake or a soda uh, three times a day versus the same number of calories eating fruits and vegetables with some combination of meal replacements. And there was just no way that you could eat that much food. If you if you did it from a volumetric approach. And and so I do think, you know, that that's actually a really wonderful message for patients, because most patients really feel like eating less is something they've already tried and been unsuccessful at, as well as, um, you know, the issue of if exercise and eating less worked, hey, we'd all be thin. So um, so I think, you know, the 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 issue about the HMR program um, is is a wonderful approach in terms of trying to reset behavior, to get behavioral coaching, to lose weight quickly and safely, and to then be able to carry on and change your behavior. And I I wanted to to mention that um, for those individuals who are interested in HMR, you can ask your healthcare provider to refer you. Um, and then you get, you're welcome to watch a free um, seminar that will give you a little more information about this. But um, but the but the physicians in the Provident system are very happy and willing to make a referral. Um, you also can get more information by going online to HMR. And um, and I would you know uh, close by just saying I think this is um, a wonderful program that I highly recommend and certainly in the world of prediabetes and diabetes is something that is is embraced um, uh, internationally as a good approach to the treatment of diabetes and prediabetes. And I didn't know if you had any any other, you know, last minute comments that we wanted to make. I would just reinforce what you just said, which is um, attend a free information session. I do them every week within the Providence Network. Uh, Several of my colleagues do as well. There are many available. It will be minimally a learning experience uh, and you'll get a better sense of how HMR can really support you to make some lifestyle changes. I guess the, the final thing I'd say is, you know, obviously we've made this point many times, weight management and losing weight and keeping it off is very, very difficult in today's culture. 
Um, but really within the whole area of lifestyle change, there is a positive message. And Fran, you know this, that is that it's not an all or nothing um, uh, choice. By making even just a few lifestyle changes, just starting, for example, a, a walking program, starting with five minutes a day, eating a few more fruits and vegetables, the health effects can actually be fairly remarkable. Even though you may not be losing as much weight as you'd like, it starts you in the direction that ultimately you will need to go to, um, to reach your weight loss goals. So the message here, I think, is really a positive one, which is small changes in your lifestyle health habits, if you start to make them consistently, can lead to major improvements in your health and quality of life and can also open the door to you maybe rewriting your future about your weight management. It really does start with uh, making a few lifestyle changes to start. Right. And, and, you know, truly embracing your life and taking back control and quality of life improvements. And, and I think to your point, um, you know, even 5% uh, of a body weight drop has a significant metabolic health, um, health effect in terms of risk for disease. So um, it is true that small steps go a long way. And um, certainly that's the place to start. Absolutely. So thank you for joining me. This has been great. And um, I think if you guys have any questions that you have wanted to get answered or we didn't have a chance to address, um, please, you know, send them through the chat um, and we'd be happy to, to talk about that further. It's great. It's great talking to you, friend. Yes, you too. Always, always fun. Always, always a pleasure. You bet. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thank well, thank you to our expert for joining us today and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening. Music